Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Yacht Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Ben. And I'm Yakov. And today we are getting into episode 22 on diarrhea. There are a lot of causes of diarrhea, and we're going to tackle all the important ones for the boards. We're also going to get into some nice pathophys about osmotic versus secretory diarrhea. Specifically, we'll be covering malabsorption syndromes like celiac and lactose intolerance, infectious diarrhea with an emphasis on C. diff, as well as factitious, irritable bowel, refeeding, and dumping syndromes. Let's slide in. Hey, Ben. Yeah? Let's avoid using slide uh, when we're talking about diarrhea. I don't know. The word just sounds a little, little off. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Let's dive in. I think dive in sounds even worse. Why, why, don't, we, why don't we just get started? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. So let's go into our first case. We have a 50-year-old male with recent gallbladder removal, and he's coming in with six weeks of constant watery diarrhea, even in the middle of the night. His vitals are normal, and lab results, including C. diff, are all negative. So Ben, what's going on with this patient? So it sounds like bile acid diarrhea. So what is bile acid diarrhea, and why are we talking about it now instead of during our biliary episodes? Great question. Bile acid diarrhea is when unabsorbed bile acids irritate the colon, causing diarrhea. We're talking about it now because it's a great example of secretory diarrhea. Ah, uh, yes. The always confusing secretory versus osmotic diarrhea. Let's dive into that. So can you tell me uh, the difference between secretory and osmotic diarrhea? Sure. Secretory diarrhea is when a factor such as a toxin, hormone, or bile acid result in both water and electrolytes flowing into the colon, causing diarrhea. Osmotic diarrhea is when a substance is not easily absorbed from the colon, and that brings water, but not electrolytes, inside via osmosis. Great, that makes sense. And what's the biggest clinical difference between those? Since osmotic diarrhea is due to ingestion of a certain substance, it doesn't happen during fasting. When the cause is secretory, test writers always seem to mention the patient is having nocturnal diarrhea because that is happening during fasting. Great. And let's tell the listeners about the stool osmotic gap, since that's, that tends to come up every once in a while and can be a little confusing. I completely agree. Stool osmotic gap is the difference between normal osmolality, which is about 290, and the major electrolytes in the stool, which is estimated by two times the sum of sodium and potassium. You'll never actually have to calculate it but know that the osmotic gap is low in secretory diarrhea and high in osmotic. Great. And before we move on, let's just explain why the osmotic gap is low in secretory versus high in osmotic. The osmotic gap is low in secretory because you're putting more electrolytes into the stool than water. More electrolytes means a smaller difference from normal. In osmotic diarrhea, only water is being added to the stool, decreasing ion concentrations. With a decrease in ions, there is a larger difference from normal. That's perfectly said. And with that, let's move into some malabsorption syndromes. So Ben, take it away. I agree. So we have a 30-year-old female who comes in for six weeks of postprandial pain, bloating, and watery diarrhea. She had never had symptoms like this before, except a few months ago, she did catch a, quote, stomach bug at a party. She denies weight loss or changes in diet. Her vitals and exam are completely normal. What is likely going on here? So this actually sounds like a case of lactose intolerance. Hmm, what gives you that idea? 
So lactose intolerance can often be triggered by gastroenteritis, and it sounds like she's been having uh, postprandial discomfort and diarrhea um, ever since she had that, quote, GI bug. What's the pathophys behind lactose intolerance? So with lactose intolerance, you get a loss of the brush border enzyme lactase, which breaks down lactose in the gut. The enzyme can be depleted in several ways, sometimes related to genetics, other times related to inflammation, such as the case we see in this patient. But why does that cause diarrhea? Well, lactose is an osmotically active solute when it's not broken down. So it will pull water into the colon as it makes its way down the GI tract, just like we mentioned before. And what did we say the stool osmotic gap would be in this case? So in this case, it would be high because there would be a lower electrolyte concentration. There's a higher gap. Great. And what are a few other risk factors for developing lactose intolerance? Certain races and ethnicities are associated with higher prevalences, such as Asian, African, and Hispanic people. Uh, And like I mentioned, genetics plays a role as well. How do we diagnose this patient? So there are two strategies. One is to try a lactose-free diet and monitor for any improvement in symptoms. And the other is the lactose or lactose hydrogen or just hydrogen breath test, uh, which measures whether or not administered lactose is being broken down. Sounds fancy. How do we treat lactose intolerance? Unfortunately, you can't really cure it. You just sort of counsel the patient to avoid dairy and to take oral lactase enzymes if they do consume dairy. Let's move on to another cause of malabsorption. Oh, Ben, I think I see what you did there. Moo, like, like a cow, like milk. Is that what you meant? Yes, Jakob, you, okay. you completely got it. Yep. Well, we'll give you brownie points for that. That's good. Thank you. So next case, we have a 25-year-old male who comes in with six months of bulky, foul-smelling stools, joint pain, fatigue, and a 10-kilogram weight loss. He's coming in because he just started having a burning feeling in his hands. Exam shows conjunctival pallor and a beefy tongue. Labs show a hemoglobin of 10.2, so slightly low. A lot going on here, Ben. What do you think is going on with this patient? Sounds like a pretty classic presentation for celiac disease. Great. What gives you the idea that this is celiac disease and what's the pathophysiology there? So his bulky, foul-smelling stools and weight loss suggest constant malabsorption and his signs of anemia and other vitamin deficiencies support that. Celiac disease is an autoimmune reaction to a protein and gluten, which results in villous atrophy of the small intestine. So the patient has severely diminished ability to absorb nutrients from the gut. And that sounds just awful. So can we explain the different signs that you mentioned and what causes each of them? Sure. So bulky, foul-smelling stools, also called steatorrhea, are a sign of fat malabsorption. This, along with protein malabsorption, explain the weight loss. His joint pains are likely from vitamin D malabsorption, and his pallor and anemia are from iron deficiency. Great. And what about the burning in his hands and the beefy red tongue that was mentioned in the question stem? That's actually tricky because it sounds like that might be from something like B12 deficiency, but these paresthesias and atrophic glossitis, meaning the inflamed red tongue, are more likely direct results of autoimmune processes that are often seen in celiac disease. Interesting. So what is one classic dermatologic manifestation of celiac not seen in the question stem here? That would be dermatitis herpetiformis, which are these severely puritic erythematous papules and or vesicles, which usually erupt on the elbows and knees and are not seen in all celiac patients. Gosh, that sounds awful as well. How would we diagnose our patient with celiac disease? 
So we'd start with an IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody test, but this can often be falsely negative and a colonoscopy with biopsies demonstrating villus atrophy is the gold standard. Great. And how do we manage our patient with newly diagnosed celiac disease? Unfortunately, like lactose intolerance, the only treatment is a gluten-free diet. Fortunately, the disease is generally well-controlled as long as gluten is avoided. Perfect. And with that, let's jump into our next case, dealing with infectious etiologies of diarrhea. Perfect. A seven-year-old female with a past medical history of recent sinusitis and a long history of GERD comes in with three days of six to eight watery bowel movements every day. Her temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, her abdominal exam is normal, and her labs show a white blood cell count of 14,000. What's causing this patient's diarrhea? So it sounds like our poor 70-year-old lady has a C. diff infection. What is C. diff? So C. diff is Clostridium difficile. It's a spore-forming gram-positive rod, which loves to get into the colon, release its spores, and cause horrible diarrhea and infection for our poor patients. What makes you think that this patient has it? So a few things point towards C. diff. She was probably on antibiotics recently because you mentioned she previously had sinusitis. And recent antibiotic use and or hospitalization is actually the number one risk factor for C. diff. She might also be on an acid reducer such as a PPI or H2 blocker for her GERD that you mentioned. And acid reduction also leaves the gut susceptible to infections. Plus, the classic triad of frequent watery bowel movements with fever and leukocytosis, like we saw in this patient, really point to C. diff as the likely cause. Wow, thorough thought process. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. What other risk factors are there for C. diff infection? Age over 65, which also applies to this patient, but also a history of inflammatory bowel disease or chemotherapy also predispose a patient to C. diff. Okay, so now that we have a a pretty good idea of what's going on, how do we definitively diagnose this patient? So that would be a stool toxin assay specific to C. diff, and it's really important to know you're looking for the toxin. Very good point. And what do we do for her? She should definitely get some IV fluids, but most importantly, she should get oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin. That's weird. I thought that antibiotics caused this in the first place. Yep, you're absolutely right, but you need to give the right antibiotics directly to the gut to solve the problem. Oral vancomycin basically has no systemic absorption, so it only kills off gut bacteria. All right, so let's say we admit her, we give her the vanc, but two days later, she starts getting worse. She's having abdominal pain and distension and is no longer having bowel movements. Her fever has also worsened to 38.8 Celsius and her leukocytosis to 22,000. What complication of C. diff is probably happening now? And what are our next steps? So unfortunately, this sounds like she has toxic megacolon, which is one of the complications of C. diff. So we would want to get abdominal imaging to show the dilation and confirm that. Uh, She could then be managed with bowel rest, nasogastric suctioning, and continuing the antibiotics. Let's say one day after this, her pain is even worse. And now on exam, there's severe tenderness, both to pressing and releasing her abdomen. Labs show an elevated lactate to 12. What's going on now and what do we do? So this sounds like probably the worst complication of C. diff, which is fulminant toxic megacolon with a perforation since she now has signs of peritonitis. Uh, like, Like Ben mentioned, she seems to be having rebound tenderness and severe pain. She would need immediate laparotomy and IV metronidazole. Perfect. Let's say that's what they do. And she does great in the surgery and makes it home to the grandkid. 
Woohoo! Yay! That's let's <laughs> let's move on from C. diff and on to some other infectious etiologies of diarrhea. Great. So for our next case, we have a 30-year-old male coming in with five days of diarrhea, which started out watery but has become bloody and is associated with severe abdominal pain. He hasn't had any vomiting. He hasn't traveled recently, but he does eat a diet mostly consisting of fast food, lots of burgers. Um, what's the likely cause of this patient's diarrhea? Hmm. Probably has nothing to do with the burgers. Right. This, <laughs> this sounds like an infection with enterohemorrhagic E. coli or EHEC. Great. What gives you the idea that this is EHEC? Well, this young, healthy person with acute onset bloody diarrhea probably just got an infection from an undercooked burger. Ah, uh, gotcha. Those burgers don't get you. And what type of diarrhea is this? Inflammatory, meaning stool studies would show blood and or leukocytes when examined. What are some other infectious causes of inflammatory diarrhea that's, that test takers should know? That would be the list of Shigella, Campylobacter jejuni, Yersinia, and Salmonella are the main ones that they test on. Perfect. What if this patient came in just four hours after a meal and they were vomiting a lot with only a little diarrhea? What would you think of then? So that sounds like what we call vomiting predominant infectious diarrhea, which is either caused by vasculus serious or staph aureus. Great. And how can we differentiate between B serious and staph aureus? B serious is classically from old fried rice or noodles, and staph is usually from poorly heated meats or egg products, the classic being potato salad. Yeah, don't leave out that potato salad for too long, guys. And why do these cause diarrhea and vomiting so quickly after ingestion? Because these two bacteria have preformed enterotoxin, which causes irritation within one to four hours after ingestion. Oh, gosh. So let's say the patient just got back from traveling abroad and they have watery, not bloody diarrhea. What would you think of then? So they, there are actually many causes of non-inflammatory diarrhea, especially for the traveler. But the classic cause of traveler's diarrhea is enterotoxigenic E. coli or ETEC. Great. And what's an infectious cause of diarrhea that can present very similar to the malabsorption syndromes that we mentioned previously? That would be giardiasis, which is when the parasite giardia, often from infected water, damages the intestinal mucosa and causes decreased absorption of solutes, especially fats, resulting in steatorrhea. Great. And now that we've thoroughly covered all sorts of infectious diarrheas, we're going to wrap up with some low yield etiologies. Jakob, that's weird. I thought that all diarrhea was high yield. You, oh God. You, you get it? Like high, there's a lot I, of it. I get it. I get it. And I'm picturing describing uh, a bowel movement as high yield and I'm just not liking it. With that, a 35 year old male who works in a nursing home comes in with several weeks of 10 to 12 watery bowel movements a day. He has no associated symptoms, except recently he started feeling lightheaded. Vitals show orthostatic hypotension. He was recently hospitalized for a similar issue two months prior, and all testing, including colonoscopy, was negative. What does this sound like? Sadly, this sounds like factitious diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And what gives you that idea? Well, it's very rare to have prolonged bouts of greater than 10 bowel movements a day, and this patient does work in healthcare, which is the main risk factor for factitious diarrhea. Plus, not to mention, you mentioned all of those negative studies previously. Right. And specifically, what is the most likely cause of the diarrhea itself? 
So it's very common to see laxative abuse as uh, a common cause of factitious diarrhea. And can we do any testing to confirm? So factitious uh, disorder is a psychiatric diagnosis, but laxative abuse would present itself with a high osmotic gap since laxatives are highly osmotic agents. Uh, Also on colonoscopy, you could see something called melanosis coli, which is essentially a dark brown discoloration of the colon. And you see that specifically in patients who are taking docusate as a laxative. Yeah. And any other lab abnormalities we'd expect outside of those? Actually, from all causes of diarrhea, you can get hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and a non-ion gap metabolic acidosis. Those are quite common uh, since you're losing potassium, magnesium, and bicarb from all of the profuse diarrhea. How can you tell the difference between factitious diarrhea and something like irritable bowel syndrome? That's a great question, actually. So irritable bowel syndrome also tends to present as either diarrhea or constipation in younger people, but it is generally associated with abdominal pain that worsens or improves with defecation. And a patient with IBS wouldn't have such a high frequency of stools. They're typically around three to four per day maximum if they are having frequent stools. So getting back to our 35-year-old male with factitious disorder, if he stops taking the laxatives and we start feeding him again, is he at risk of refeeding syndrome? Probably not. So refeeding syndrome is when someone who is chronically malnourished, especially patients with anorexia nervosa or underlying malignancy where they can't eat for long periods of time, they, uh, when you reintroduce the diet, that's when you could see refeeding syndrome. And essentially it's due to a high release of insulin, which results in rapid and dangerous electrolyte shifts. Can you briefly mention which specific electrolytes? Absolutely. So the main culprit is phosphate, which rapidly drops when glycolysis starts again after it hasn't been working for a while. Potassium and magnesium also follow in the same pattern. So what you'll see in refeeding syndrome is hypophosphatemia, hypokalemia, and hypomagnesemia. And all of those can result in deadly arrhythmias. So I know this is getting even further away from the patient case, but I always used to get refeeding and dumping syndrome confused. Can you explain the difference? Absolutely. And I can relate to that. So dumping syndrome occurs when either from malignancy, perforation, and or a gastrectomy, the pyloric sphincter doesn't stop food from moving directly into the small intestine. So think of it almost as a continuous flow through a pyloric sphincter that's not doing its job. Right. So it's completely different from refeeding because the dumping syndrome patient wasn't malnourished before. They just have a bad pylorus. Exactly. So how does the dumping syndrome patient usually present? Also quite differently from a refeeding syndrome patient. So the patient with dumping syndrome will have classically flushing and hypotension with large volume diarrhea about 30 minutes after eating. And that has to do with rapid fluid shifts from the vascular space into the undigested hypertonic fluid that's in the small intestine. That is it for this lovely topic. Next on to its evil twin, constipation. Uh, Ben, I'd say they're probably both pretty evil. I'd say you're probably right, Yaakov. Tune in next time. 